This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 11. Chapter 6. The Old Curiosity Shop. Part 1. Nothing is important except the fate of the soul, and literature is only redeemed from an utter triviality, surpassing that of noughts and crosses, by the fact that it describes not the world around us, or the things on the retina of the eye, or the enormous irrelevancy of encyclopedias, but some condition to which the human spirit can come. All good writers express the state of their souls, even as occurs in some cases of very good writers, if it is a state of damnation. The first thing that has to be realized about Dickens is this ultimate spiritual condition of the man, which lay behind all his creations. This Dickens state of mind is difficult to pick out in words, as are all elementary states of mind. They cannot be described, not because they are too subtle for words, but because they are too simple for words. Perhaps the nearest approach to a statement of it would be this, that Dickens expresses an eager anticipation of everything that will happen in the motley affairs of men. He looks at the quiet crowd waiting for it to be picturesque and to play the fool. He expects everything. He is torn with a happy hunger. Thackeray is always looking back to yesterday. Dickens is always looking forward to tomorrow. Both are profoundly humorous, for there is a humor of the morning and a humor of the evening. But the first guesses at what it will get, at all the grotesqueness and variety which a day may bring forth, the second looks back on what the day has been, and sees even its solemnities as slightly ironical. Nothing can be too extravagant for the laughter that looks forward, and nothing can be too dignified for the laughter that looks back. It is an idle but obvious thing which many must have noticed, that we often find in the title of one of an author's books what might very well stand for a general description of all of them. Thus all Spencer's works might be called A Hymn to Heavenly Beauty, or all Mr. Bernard Shaw's bound books might be called You Never Can Tell. In the same way, the whole substance and spirit of Thackeray might be gathered under the general title Vanity Fair. In the same way, too, the whole substance and spirit of Dickens might be gathered under the general title Great Expectations. In a recent criticism on this position, I saw it remarked that all this is reading into Dickens something that he did not mean, and I have been told that it would have greatly surprised Dickens to be informed that he went down the broad road of the revolution. Of course it would. Criticism does not exist to say about authors the things that they knew themselves. It exists to say the things about them which they did not know themselves. If a critic says that the Iliad has a pagan rather than a Christian pity, or that it is full of pictures made by one epithet, of course he does not mean that Homer could have said that. If Homer could have said that, the critic would leave Homer to say it. The function of criticism, if it has a legitimate function at all, can only be one function, that of dealing with the subconscious part of the author's mind, which only the critic can express, 
and not with the conscious part of the author's mind, which the author himself can express. Either criticism is no good at all, a very defensible position, or else criticism means saying about an author the very things that would have made him jump out of his boots. Doubtless, the name in this case, Great Expectations, is an empty coincidence, and indeed it is not in the books of the later Dickens period, the period of Great Expectations, that we should look for the best examples of this sanguine and expectant spirit, which is the essential of the man's genius. There are plenty of good examples of it, especially in the earlier works, but even in the earlier works there is no example of it more striking or more satisfactory than the old curiosity shop. It is particularly noticeable in the fact that its opening and original framework express the ideas of a random experience. A thing come across in the street, a single face in the crowd, followed until it tells its story. Though the thing ends in a novel, it begins in a sketch. It begins as one of the sketches by Bose. There is something unconsciously artistic in the very clumsiness of this opening. Master Humphrey starts to keep a scrapbook of all his adventures, and he finds that he can fill the whole scrapbook with the sequels and the developments of one adventure. He goes out to notice everybody, and he finds himself busily and variedly occupied only in watching somebody. In this there is a very profound truth about the true excitement and inexhaustible poetry of life. The truth is not so much that eternity is full of souls as that one soul can fill eternity. In strict art there is something quite lame and lumbering about the way in which the benevolent old storyteller starts to tell many stories and then drops away altogether while one of his stories takes his place. But in a larger art his collision with little Nell and his complete eclipse by her personality and narrative have a real significance. They suggest the random richness of such meetings and their uncalculated results. It makes the whole book a sort of splendid accident. It is not true, as is commonly said, that the Dickens pathos as pathos is bad. It is not true, as is still more commonly said, that the whole business about Little Nell is bad. The case is more complex than that. Yet complex as it is, it admits of one sufficiently clear distinction. Those who have written about the death of Little Nell have generally noticed the crudities of the character itself, the little girl's unnatural and staring innocence, her constrained and awkward piety. But they have nearly all of them entirely failed to notice that there is in the death of Little Nell one quite definite and really artistic idea. It is not an artistic idea that a little child should die rhetorically on the stage like Paul Dombey, and Little Nell does not die rhetorically upon the stage like Paul Dombey. But it is an artistic idea that all the good powers and personalities in the story should set out in pursuit of one insignificant child to repair an injustice to her, should track her from town to town over England with all the resources of wealth, intelligence, and travel, and should all arrive too late. All the good fairies and all the kind magicians, all the just kings and all the gallant princes, with chariots and flying dragons and armies and navies, go after one little child who had strayed into a wood and find her dead. 
That is the conception which Dickens' artistic instinct was really aiming at when he finally condemned Little Nell to death, after keeping her, so to speak, so long with the rope around her neck. The death of Little Nell is open certainly to the particular denial which its enemies make about it. The death of Little Nell is not pathetic. It is perhaps tragic. It is in reality ironic. Here is a very good case of the injustice to Dickens on his purely literary side. It is not that I say that Dickens achieved what he designed. It is that the critics will not see what the design was. They go on talking of the death of Little Nell as if it were a mere example of maudlin description, like the death of Little Paul. As a fact, it is not described at all, so it cannot be objectionable. It is not the death of Little Nell, but the life of Little Nell, that I object to. In this, in the actual picture of her personality, if you can call it personality, Dickens did fall into some of his facile vices. The real objection to much of his pathos belongs really to another part of his character. It is connected with his vanity, his voracity for all kinds of praise, his restive experimentalism, and even perhaps his envy. He strained himself to achieve pathos. His humor was inspiration, but his pathos was ambition. His laughter was lonely. He would have laughed on a desert island, but his grief was gregarious. He liked to move great masses of men, to melt them into tenderness, to play on the people as a great pianist plays on them, to make them mad or sad. His pathos was to him a way of showing his power, and for that reason it was really powerless. He could not help making people laugh, but he tried to make them cry. We come in this novel, as we often do come in his novels, upon hard lumps of unreality upon a phrase that suddenly sickens. That is always due to his conscious despotism over the delicate feelings. That is always due to his love of fame as distinct from his love of fun. But it is not true that all Dickens' pathos is like this. It is not even true that all the passages about Little Nell are like this. There are two strands almost everywhere, and they can be differentiated as the sincere and the deliberate. There is great difference between Dickens thinking about the tears of his characters and Dickens thinking about the tears of his audience. When all this is allowed, however, and the exaggerated contempt for the Dickens pathos is properly corrected, the broad fact remains that to pass from the solemn characters in this book to the comic characters in this book is to be like some Ulysses who should pass suddenly from the land of shadows to the mountain of the gods. Little Nell has her own position in careful and reasonable criticism. Even that wobbling old ass, her grandfather, has his position in it. Perhaps even the dissipated Fred, whom long acquaintance with Mr. Dick Swiveller has not made any less dismal in his dissipation, has a place in it also. But when we come to Swiveller and Samson Brass and Quilp and Mrs. Jarley, then Fred and Nell and the grandfather simply do not exist. There are no such people in the story. The real hero and heroine of the old curiosity shop are, of course, Dick Swiveller and the Marchioness. It is significant in a sense that these two sane, strong, living, and lovable human beings are the only two, or almost the only two people in the story, who do not run after little Nell. 
they have something better to do than go on that shadowy chase after that cheerless phantom. They have to build up between them a true romance. Perhaps the one true romance in the whole of Dickens. Dick Swiveller really has all the half-heroic characteristics which make a man respected by a woman, and which are the male contribution to virtue. He is brave, magnanimous, sincere about himself, amusing, absurdly hopeful. Above all, he is both strong and weak. On the other hand, the Marchioness really has all the characteristics, the entirely heroic characteristics, which make a woman respected by a man. She is female, that is, she is at once incurably candid and incurably loyal. She is full of terrible common sense. She expects little pleasure for herself, and yet she can enjoy bursts of it above all. She is physically timid, and yet she can face anything. All this solid rocky romanticism is really implied in the speech and action of these two characters, and can be felt behind them all the time. Because they are the two most absurd people in the book, they are also the most vivid, human, and imaginable. There are two happy, really fine love affairs in Dickens, and I almost think only two. One is the happy courtship of Swiveller and the Marchioness. The other is the tragic courtship of Toots and Florence Dombey. When Dick Swiveller wakes up in a bed and sees the Marchioness playing cribbage, he thinks that he and she are a prince and a princess in a fairy tale. He thinks right. End of section 11, chapter 6, The Old Curiosity Shop, part 1.